Right, wonderful. Well, uh, yeah, we can give it up for Bogdan. Uh, Bogdan, you're actually in the room right now. Would you stand so we can recognize you and appreciate the ministry you do? Thank you to you and your family. And thank you to all of you who contribute to the ministry of this church. It allows us to support international partners doing incredible gospel ministry all over the world. Hey, if you have a Bible with you and want to grab that right now, we're going to be in Zephaniah chapter 3. Uh, this will be our third and final week in this Old Testament prophetic book. Zephaniah chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, and to recap where we've been over the last three weeks, the first week we looked at Zephaniah chapter 1. And here's what we saw. We saw that Zephaniah chapter 1 was the word of the Lord to his people. So, so in other words, the first week of this series, what we saw is what God has to say to his family, to his covenant people. And what we saw clearly is that what God had to say to them is that you are sinning, you are rebelling against me, and what you need to do is repent of your sin and come back to me. And then in the second week we saw in Zephaniah chapter 2, this was the word of the Lord about the nations. So the first week was about what God had to say to his people, and the second week is here's what God has to say to everyone else. And what we saw clearly is that God knows there's evil in the world, he's going to do something about that evil in the world. And therefore, we as the followers of Jesus need to live accordingly, trusting that God will be the judge of the world, and we don't have to be. And then this week, as we reach the third and final chapter of Zephaniah, here's what we're going to see. We are going to see the word of the Lord concerning good news. Good news. Now, for some of you, this will come as a welcome relief, because if you've been reading Zephaniah closely, you'll recognize there is not a lot of good news in the first two chapters. Some of you have been eager and crying out, is there anything good coming out of this chapter? Is there anything good coming out of this prophet? And the answer this morning is yes, that God has good news of great joy for all people, including those of us in the room this morning. But as we jump into this good news, I want you to maybe think about it this way. I want to make a distinction between two different types of good news. The first type of good news makes sense without any context. So, so imagine it this way. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You've hit the afternoon slump at work. And you're at your laptop, you're at your computer, and you're working, and you suddenly get an all-staff email that says there are donuts and fresh coffee in the break room. <laughs> that is good news. You don't need to know who brought it or why they brought it or what's going on in their interior life to say that is good news. Imagine your boss pulls you into his office and says, hey, I need to tell you something. Um, we're going to be giving you a raise. That is good news. You don't need a bunch of other context or other information to know this is good news. And yet there's another kind of good news that we'll all recognize immediately. And the second type of good news only makes sense with context. So if you got a phone call from your doctor this afternoon who said, I have good news for you. We ran all the tests and everything came out clear. That is good news that only makes sense if you knew that there was something serious going on in your body to the point that they had to do tests to figure out if it was happening. Or imagine you hear the good news from a judge who declares not guilty over your life. Well, that is only good news in the context of you being on trial for your life. So again, there's these two types of good news. One where you really don't need context, and the second where context makes all the difference. And this morning... The good news of Zephaniah, the good news of great joy for all people, is the second type of good news. See, situated in a book like Zephaniah, where we saw chapter 1 and chapter 2, and even the beginning that we'll see in chapter 3 today, God sees it as important in order for us to understand the good news, that we understand the backdrop 
We understand the context, and indeed, we understand the bad news. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 1 together. It'll be on the screens for those of you who don't have a Bible with you. It says, Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And so God is speaking now to the city of oppressors. And what we understand in the book of Zephaniah is that is the city of Jerusalem. God is speaking to his people. He is speaking to the city of oppressors in Jerusalem. And he is calling them out for the sin and the wickedness in their life. And he's identifying four different things that their sin and their wickedness has caused in their life and in their city. Let me give you the four different things identified here. In verse 2, you'll see she obeys no one. See, sin causes us to rebel against the authority God has put over us. This is what sin does in our life. It causes us to rebel against the right and good and just authority that God has put over our life. Number two, sin causes us to reject correction from people God has put around us. You'll see here, in the, again, verse two, it says she accepts no correction. So in other words, sin causes me to rebel against the authority over me, to reject the input or correction or help of the people around me. Number three, sin causes us to doubt the goodness God has demonstrated toward us. Like, in other words, what sin is going to do is cause me to doubt that God is good. It says here, she does not trust in the Lord, does not trust in Yahweh, does not trust in the goodness of their God. And then finally, sin causes us to resist the spirit God has put inside of us. It says she does not draw near to her God. So here's what sin has caused the people of God in Jerusalem or the people in Jerusalem to do. They're rejecting authority over them. They're rejecting the people around them. They're rejecting the goodness of God toward them. And they're rejecting the presence of God in them. This is the consequence of sin in our life. And when sin runs rampant in our life and we do not deal with it, what causes issues is it causes inside of us to reject these things. And when an entire culture, an entire society, an entire city does this, it causes them to go in a wayward direction. And this is important for us to understand this morning, and here's why. Because this is not the way that human beings are described in our world today. In fact, I think it's helpful to discern between the biblical and the secular view of this. I want you to understand that the secular worldview insists that the source of our problems is outside of us. So the major problem is the government or the systems or the structures or, or someone else in this world. It's their fault that there's problems. And the Bible is not going to deny that there are systems issues and government and culture issues. It's not going to deny that there's problems out there. But the biblical worldview is going to say something different. The biblical worldview insists that the source of our problems is inside of us. Like in other words, the Bible is going to teach that you can fix all of the laws and change all of the governments and change everything out there. But the issue of the human heart, if that is not solved, no lasting change will actually occur. See, for the scriptures, the great problem in the world is not out there somewhere. According to the Bible, the great problem in the world resides in my own heart, in your own heart, that the biggest and deepest problem to solve is the issue of human nature. It is the issue of the human heart. I want you to see how it continues in verse 3. It says, her officials, again, this is Jerusalem, her officials within her are like roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They're treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. 
Morning by morning he dispenses his justice, and every day he does not fail, yet the unrighteous know no shame. I have destroyed the nations, their strongholds are demolished, I've left their streets deserted, and with no one passing through, their cities are weighed laced, they're deserted and empty. And then verse 7, God says this, Of Jerusalem I thought, surely you would fear me and accept correction. Then their place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they're still eager to act corruptly in all that they did. In other words, God's going, I've been warning you. I've been warning you over and over and over again that there will be consequences for your sin. And the reason I'm warning you is because I want you to turn from your sin and not experience the punishment and the judgment that I have for you. And yet it says they're still eager to act corruptly. Then verse 8, it says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath upon them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. In other words, God goes, I've been warning human beings. I keep warning them and warning them that if they keep walking in their sin, if they keep rebelling against me, that there is punishment and judgment to come. But they keep doing their thing. They keep going in that direction. They keep saying, forget you, God, and I'm going to go my own way. And God says this, that surely what will happen is this, that he will pour out his wrath on them. And who is the them being described here? The them is the people who want to turn from God, go their own direction, and not repent and come back to him. The people who reject God, reject his authority, and reject his ways, and instead go their own direction, refusing to receive what God has for them. And here's what God says for those people. I will pour out my wrath upon them. Now, here's what I want to recognize in the room, even when that word is spoken. I want to recognize that talking about God's wrath is uncomfortable. It, it is not something most of us are eager to get in a discussion about. It's not something most of us are eager to hear a great sermon on. It's something that for a lot of us causes us to tense up or, or, or to get nervous. And because of that, talking about God's wrath is unpopular. It's not the subject of the most popular Christian conferences or books. But here's what I'm convinced of. If we want to be a church that lives and loves like Jesus, if we want to be a church that lives and loves like Jesus, we need to be a church that thinks like Jesus and believes what Jesus believed. So in other words, yes, it is unpopular and it is uncomfortable, but I'm convinced if we want to be a church that lives and loves like Jesus, talking about God's wrath is necessary. It's necessary because if we want to live and love like Jesus, we need to think the way Jesus thought. And he clearly and unashamedly taught about the wrath of God, wanting us to understand the depth of this. So throughout this whole series, one of the things I hope you've noticed is that we began saying this is a series about the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord, and that word the Lord in the Hebrew language is the word Yahweh. Yahweh simply means in the Hebrew language, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And so what we've said all throughout the series is this is what's true about our God, that God is who he is and you do not get a vote. That's who our God is. He simply reveals himself and says, this is who I am. You can receive me, you can reject me, but you do not get to reshape me into your own image. I love how Tim Keller puts it. This is one of my favorite quotes of him. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Yeah, 
don't do that. You know, it's like, it's like I, I so badly want God to just agree with all the opinions Brian Howard has. And all the things I like, I want God to agree with. And all the things I don't like, I would like God to disagree with. But what I'm confronted with in the Bible is a God who has opinions I don't always come to on my own. In fact, I'm confronted with a God who thinks things different than I think. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And this is how we have to approach the God of the Bible. We have to approach the God of the Bible not looking for the things we want and rejecting the things that make us uncomfortable, but rather receiving it as a whole. Like, I'll put it to you this way. So this last week, March 1st, uh, we got to celebrate, my wife and I, 10 years of marriage, uh, which was a wonder, thank you, wonderful celebration right here on this stage 10 years ago, March 1st of 2013, we got married and uh, so we decided to go away uh, for a few days. My wife's parents watched the kids, and so it was just the two of us, and we got away. And I don't know what you do when you get away, but my wife and I's only agenda uh, when we leave uh, and go stay anywhere is just to eat food constantly, right? <laughs> like, that's all we want to do. So we got one of these all-inclusive resorts where it's just like it's all paid for. Uh, and, and in the all-inclusive resort, there's really two types of, of meals you can go to. The first uh, is the buffet, and, and I love a good buffet. Let me tell you, you, you roll through the buffet. We'll put the picture up here. Uh, and you're, yeah, yeah, you just kind of, yeah, you roll through and you're like, yes, I would like the chicken. Yes, I would like the steak. Yes, I would like two servings of the bread and no thanks on the Brussels sprouts, right? Like that's what we do. And you roll through a buffet and you just get what you like. And you, you don't even like think about the things you don't want. You just ignore it and blow on by because it's a buffet. But then here's the second type of restaurant we had this last week. And that was the plated meal restaurant where you ordered something and they brought it out to you and, and then they said, here's your dish and they put it on there and whatever was on the plate was on the plate. And it got me thinking about the way we need to approach God and really the way we need to approach his communicated word in the scripture. And it got me thinking this way, that the Bible is not a buffet where you would choose what you would like. It's not. It's not like you get to go through the buffet and be like, I'll take God's love and I'll take his mercy and I'll take his grace and his kindness but, but I'm going to go ahead and ignore his justice and his holiness and his wrath. No, no, the Bible is not a buffet where you choose what you would like. The Bible is a plated meal that you can receive or reject as a whole. You receive it, all of it. God plates it up and says, this is who I am. I am who I am. You can receive it, you can reject it, but you don't get to say that it's different than what it actually is. And there is, on this plated meal, Something God serves up that says that this is the result of my wrath toward human beings who will not turn from their sin and come to the forgiveness in Jesus. And it is part of that plated meal, and it is the part we would like to ignore, not talk about, downplay, or otherwise not believe in. Uh, and yet again, if we're going to receive the scriptures as a whole, we need to recognize part of what's on that plate is this. That the word the Bible uses for the wrath we all deserve is the word hell. It's the word hell. And believe me, this is not something pastors love to get up and talk about. At least we don't love to talk about it. It's not like we're like, yes, this is our favorite subject. And yet one of the things I'm convinced of in my role as a pastor here at this church is that I would be a terrible pastor if from time to time I did not stand up here and warn you that if you do not turn from your sin and turn to your God, what the Bible says, not what I'm coming up with, but what the Bible says is that God's wrath is upon you and the destination for your eternity is hell. And listen, um, this is something I have to warn. It's like this. I got like a three-year-old little boy who just turned three. 
Uh, and if you've ever had a three-year-old little boy, you'll know immediately what I'm talking about. You ever notice how three-year-old little boys are just heat-seeking missiles for everything that will destroy them? They're sort of like, what could I do today that would cause my mother to have a heart attack, right? Like, that's what little boys do. Um, and so he'll, like, go ahead, and he'll, like, run into the street. We're like, no, 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 you can't do that. Or he'll grab, like, a knife off the, no, don't do that. Or he'll reach for the hot stove. Or he'll stand on the windowsill. That's a part of parenting I wasn't ready for. You know, like, and so he'll do this. And from time to time, I just have to, like, pull him in and get down on his level and be like, hey, buddy, you can't do that because that's actually going to harm you. I know you don't want to hear this right now because I know you just want to do what you want to do, but I need to tell you because I love you, you can't do that. And I would be a terrible dad if I never looked at my son and said, I need to warn you about what's coming if you continue in this behavior. And in the same way, I would be a terrible pastor. We would be terrible pastors if we never stood before you and told you about the reality that the Bible describes as hell. So, so let me share just a few things you need to know. Number one, hell is real. It's not something we made up. It's not something we're just using to try to control. It's something God clearly reveals in the scripture. Number two, hell is not a joke. Sometimes heaven is described as the place you go to be with God and the angels, and then hell is where you drink beer and play cards with Satan. That, that, that is not hell described in the Bible. It's not a comic. It's not a joke. It's not a silly, light thing. Number three, hell is separation from God. It is the person who says, God, I want nothing to do with you and goes their own way for all of eternity. Number four, hell is judgment for sin. It is the just judgment and what we deserve for us rebelling against and turning from and committing treason against the high king of the universe. And then finally, hell is eternal. As much as I would love to believe that the scriptures teach that hell is emptied or that people aren't there or, or anything like that, I just don't see that clearly taught on the lips of Jesus or throughout the Bible. But then here's the most important thing you need to know about hell this morning. And if you leave remembering nothing else about hell, please remember these words. That hell is not somewhere anyone has to go. It is not somewhere anyone has to go. God says you deserve it. That is where you led yourself. The wages of sin is death and destruction, sin and wrath and hell. And yet that same God says you don't have to end up there. You do not have to go there. That does not have to be your destination or your destiny. And I want you to see why here in this very next verse in Zephaniah. In chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, Then I, being God, will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. In other words, God goes, there is a wrath coming, but it doesn't have to. If you would call on my name and cry out to me to save you, then I will purify you. We'll serve shoulder to shoulder. The idea that you're serving with God like a friend, like a father. That is what God offers. That we would be a people who call upon the name of the Lord. That he might rescue us and save us. That we might serve him shoulder to shoulder. Like a friend or like a father. See, we talk about the good news of Zephaniah 3. The word of good news of great joy to all people. And here's what it is. Like, I want to be clear from this text that the good news is not that we can know things about God. It's not that just you can have information or facts or knowledge about God. That's a good thing to have. But that's not the good news. The good news is that we can know God. We can know him personally. We can know him intimately. We can know his presence. We can speak to him and he can speak to us. I want you to know that the good news of great joy is that we deserve this wrath and condemnation. And yet God says you don't have to experience that. You can know me and the fellowship of my suffering. You can know me and the goodness of my grace. You can know me and the presence of my spirit. This is the invitation for each of us. The invitation is that we can know God. 
I think there are some of you here who know things about God. If I gave you a theology quiz, you could get a solid B minus on it pretty easy. I think there's some of you who grew up in church. I think there's others of you who kind of know vaguely things about God, but you don't know him personally. Maybe you once thought you had a relationship with God, but that's been distant. Maybe you've been walking far away from God and you know it. Maybe you've been in church your entire life, but it's always been head knowledge and never a relationship. And today, today I want to give an invitation to each and every one of you who know things about God, that today is the day where you could come to know God personally. As we conclude the sermon today, I want you to know I'll give an invitation for you to do exactly what this text says, to call upon the name of the Lord, to know God's name, to know his forgiveness, to know his mercy and kindness and grace toward you. It goes on in verse 10, it says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, Jerusalem, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave you with the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and nobody will make them afraid. Verse 14, sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. This is the good news of great joy for all people, that you can know God. You and I, who deserve God's wrath and his punishment and his condemnation, we can know God. We can have a relationship with him. We can have intimacy with him. And what do we make of this punishment will we deserve? Well, this is found clearly in this text. The Lord has taken away your punishment. This is the good news, that God says you are worthy of this punishment, and yet I am taking it away from you. Now, all throughout the Bible, we see God removing punishment, but it's not because God thinks, well, I've overreacted. Maybe sin isn't so bad. Maybe your life isn't such a big deal, and you can do whatever you want. It's not that at all. It's that God redirects that punishment toward another, and we see this in the concept all throughout the scripture, the concept of substitution. And here is substitution. Substitution is where the anger, the wrath, the condemnation, and the punishment of God goes upon another rather than you. All throughout the Old Testament, we see a sacrificial system where animals are brought to the altar and they are killed for the sins of God's people. And he is framing their minds around the idea that sin causes death and it must be paid for with blood. And so an animal is sacrificed. But we, church, we know that the fullest and final sacrifice happened upon the cross of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was the one who took the punishment upon himself. Jesus was our substitute. He stood in our place. And the punishment and condemnation that you deserve, Jesus willingly, lovingly, joyfully took upon himself on the cross of Calvary. Went into the grave and then rose from the grave to show that that check cashed. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. That is substitution. Jesus pays what we owed. In another metaphor, Jesus stands guilty in the courtroom of the universe so that we can go free. This is the good news of the gospel. This is how God takes away our punishment. It's not that God says sin is no big deal. It's that he sends his very only son to take willingly, joyfully, and lovingly the sin of the world upon himself, that we might be saved. 
This is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising from the dead for our salvation. It is the punishment taken away. In verse 16, it says, On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. In verse 17, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. If you have a Bible with you, circle that verse, highlight it, underline it, take notes, write it down, take a picture of the screen, put it on your, your, your bathroom mirror. This is a verse to memorize this week. It is one of the most haunting and beautiful verses in all of Scripture. It is so beautiful. It is so wild. It almost seems too good to be true. People ask me sometimes what's hard to believe in the Bible. And there's all kinds of things that, that are kind of controversial in our culture that don't seem terribly hard for me. But sometimes this one does. The idea that God is with me, like the God of the universe has actually taken up residence inside of my bones. That he's a mighty warrior on my behalf and he saves that he takes great delight in me, in me, after all the things I've done, after all the things I've said, after my past, my history, the ways I've fallen short, he looks at me and delights in me, that he's no longer going to rebuke you, that his posture toward me isn't one of angry and bitter and resentful, but rather delight. And then this final sentence, I almost can't get my head around. He will rejoice over you and he's going to do it with singing. Like, try to get into your mind the image that the God of the universe in heaven right now is singing a song, and he's singing it about you and how much he loves you. This is good news of great joy for all people. Child of God, this is the way your God loves you. It is not some sort of cold, distant love. It is a deep, profound love where God gushes in song over his great delight in you. Because God is not just some distant God out there. He is someone we can know as a friend and as a father. I can put it to you this way. Last weekend, um, we got to celebrate my daughter Hope's first birthday. And I think we got a picture of Hope up here. That's, that's Hope, yeah. No, she is outrageously cute. And she knows it, too. Um, and so uh, Hope, around one years old, and, and if you've had a kid or grandkid at one, you, you know how this rolls. Um, this is the age where they learn to start walking. Uh, and this is such a beautiful thing to see them, like, learn this skill in real time. And so it starts with them kind of standing up with the couch or the table and they're holding themselves. And then they finally step away from it and they do my favorite thing, which is like the deep squat, right? And, and they do that. And then what do we do when she's learning to stand on her own? Well, we do the thing and you've probably done this too. You stand five, six feet away and you say, come to daddy, come to daddy. And here's what she used to do. She would go, come to daddy. She's standing there and then she'd drop to her hands and knees and crawl over to me. I was like, no! Right? So, so we pick her back up and we put her down. And we say, come to daddy. And then, and then you see it happen, that first moment where they, they lift the foot. And they're kind of wobbling. And then they take one step. And then usually it's one step. And then, like, babies just have not learned proper falling technique. It's just it's a thing. And so they fall to the ground and it's really tragic. Like, if you fell to the ground in that way, it would be like a week on the couch for you. But, like, she recovers real quick. So she's up and she's learning to walk. And what am I doing this whole time? I'm standing over here going, come to daddy come to daddy. And she's stumbling and she's failing and she's not getting there. She's taking one step and falling right over. But I need you to know this. In the last few weeks, as this has been like an experience of her learning to walk, there has never been one moment where I've looked at my daughter Hope as she has fallen down and gone, you are one pathetic baby. <laughs> 
I've never looked at her and said, seriously, do better. Truly, I just, I don't even know how you're part of this family. I mean, come on, I need you to pick up the pace, right? I have never done that. Why? Because I love her, and she's my kid, and I'm her father, and I delight in her. And when I look at her, even as she stumbles and falls in walking toward me, I am not filled with contempt and rage and anger toward her. I'm filled with compassion and mercy and grace because I delight in her. Child of God, I want you to know the same is true about your God. Whatever you've done and wherever you are and however you continue to stumble and fall, whatever addictions you're walking in, whatever secret sin is present in your life, whatever things you did in the past that you just can't forgive yourself for or move on, I want you to know these six words this morning, that God is not disgusted with you, that the God of the universe delights in you. That's the good news of great joy. That's the good news we received this morning. The God of the universe looks at you like a father, his child, and says, come to me. Yes, you're stumbling, and yes, you're falling, and yes, you're struggling, but I want you anyway. That's what we see in Zephaniah. That's what we see in this verse. A God who has the kind of love where he looks at you, not with disgust, not with anger, not with contempt, but with compassion and with grace and with love. Dane Ortland says it this way in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He, being God, does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out the other side in order to provide a limitless, limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. That is what God has for you. A limitless supply of mercy and grace. And in just the moment that you think you have tapped out the reservoir of God's grace, he says, no, there is still more for you. I'm not finished with you. I'm not through with you. I am not disgusted with you. I delight in you. Verse 18 says these words, says, God says, I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festival, which is a burden and a reproach to you. Uh, At that time, I will deal with all those who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. And in those two verses, what I want you to notice is five times we see a couple of words. We see the words, I will. In verse 18, I will remove. In verse 19, I will deal. I will rescue. I will gather. I will give. So one of the things we need to understand about this God who forgives us and has mercy for us and who delights in us is we must understand that it is God who is doing the work here, not us. It is God who is doing the forgiving, not us. It's not our effort. It's not our merit. It's not how hard we try to impress God or make ourselves right with him. It is God who is doing the action, not us. It is God who does the saving, not you. That God, not you, was the decisive actor in your salvation. It was like a couple years ago, um, we had moved into a new house, and uh, in the backyard, there was this standalone hot tub, and, and so my kids wanted to go in it, and my daughter at the time was two, three years old, uh, and she gets into the hot tub, and I'm sitting there with her, and she can walk along like the seat part, the outside part, but when you get to the middle, the, the bottom, it's too tall for her. She's just not tall enough to do that, and so she's playing and having a good time, and, and then she slips, 
And, and what happens is, and, and he, if you have ever had a kid in the pool, you, you know this face where it goes from like, we're having fun to like terror immediately on their face. And she shows that look of terror and, and I see her going down and she goes under the water in the middle. She slips into the deep part of the hot tub. Now, now I was like inches away from her, so she was never in danger. But in that moment, just instinctually as a dad, what do you do? You reach out and you grab her and you lift her up out of the water and she's fine and she's totally doing okay. And here's what I know. She will never remember this moment because she was two, three years old. But as a dad, you remember that moment where you reached in and you grabbed her and you helped her. But imagine she does remember that moment 10, 20, 30 years from now and goes, yeah, there was this moment I fell into the hot tub and I was totally disoriented and didn't even know which way it was up. But I swam to the surface and I think my dad helped, right? I'd be like, excuse me, no. You do not get credit for that save. You did not do it. I did. I rescued you. I picked you up out of the water. You did nothing. I did all of it. It's the same way with our God when it comes to salvation. Can I put it this way? Salvation is 100% God's effort and 0% yours. 0%. Like you are not the decisive actor. God rescued. God saved. God did the forgiving. God did the saving. And if you are a child of God and know Jesus, I want you to know God saves you. God continues to sustain you, and he will be the one who glorifies you someday. It's not that you have to be a good enough boy or girl to stay in the family of God, and if you mess up, God's probably going to kick you out. That is not it. God is the one who saves. And if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, you have not been forgiven of your sins, if you do not know God personally, I want you to know the invitation this morning of good news is not clean up your life, come back in a couple months, and then you can come to God. No, the invitation is right now, in this moment. Everything that is needed to secure your salvation and forgiveness has already been accomplished in Jesus. And the Lord of the universe says, come to me. Come to me. I am ready to receive you and ready to make you my child. And how do we do that? How does that happen if it's no effort on our part? Well, we receive the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus the same way we receive all mercy and forgiveness. It's the same way we receive any gift. The way we receive a gift is just to receive it with joy and live in gratitude. And how do we receive that gift? How do we say, God, I want to receive that gift? Well, we saw this already in the scriptures. In Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 9, the simple words that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. To cry out to the Lord, to cry out to Yahweh, to cry out to the God who rescues and saves and redeems his people and says, you no longer need to live under this punishment. Come into a relationship with me. This is a phrase to call on the name of the Lord that's found throughout the entire Bible where people call on the name of the Lord and begin a relationship with him. Because that's how all relationships begin. Every relationship you have ever had begins with you sticking out your hand and introducing your name and learning theirs. And what do we do to begin a relationship with God? We call on the name of the Lord and we know him by name. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the simple invitation of Jesus. And this is the good news that we experience and receive and hear today. And this is the invitation for some of you here today. Many of you have responded to this already. You know Jesus and you walk with him and you walk with him personally and intimately. It's not that you're perfect. It's just that you are forgiven and you have been made right with God through Jesus Christ. Would this just be a reminder, this verse on the screen, of how simple it is to invite people into faith in Jesus? Don't overcomplicate it. Don't make it this wild, complex theological thing. If someone wants to come to Jesus, you say, you know what the scriptures say? That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You ask, okay, what does that mean? Let's look at the sentence. The first word here is the word everyone. 
Now, I have gone to seminary. I have done the Greek studies and the commentary studies on this word everyone. You know what it means? Everyone. All people. You're like, what about me? I didn't grow up in church. You're included in everyone. What about me? I've sinned really bad and have some secret sin that no one else knows about. Do I qualify? Everyone. Well, what about me? I I came to Jesus once, but then fell away and then came back and I keep ping-ponging my whole life. Everyone. 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 Every single person online in this room, this applies to you. It says everyone who calls, who cries out, who asks for help. When you pick up the phone and you call someone for help, it's because you can't do it on your own. Well, when you're stuck somewhere and you cry out, somebody help me. What you're saying is I can't do this on my own. I need someone else to step in and do what I cannot do. And that is how we come to the place of salvation. We recognize that we are great sinners, but there is a great savior who can rescue us in Jesus. And so we call on his name. We cry out to him. Do you know the only type of person who won't be saved is the person who says, I don't need help. I got this on my own. I don't need God. I can do without him and I can do without his son, Jesus. God calls us to call on his name that we might call for him for rescue to humble ourselves and recognize that we are great sinners in need of a great savior. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord We've seen this word, the Lord is Yahweh, this God who is who he is. You can receive him or reject him, but you don't get to reshape him. And in the New Testament, this word Lord that we see here is actually the Greek word kurios. Kurios is a word that means Lord, but it also means king. It means master. It means the one who is in charge. To call upon the name of the Lord is not to say, God, can you rescue me of my sin? But I'm going to keep doing my own thing. To call upon the name of the Lord is to recognize the reality that God is in charge of this universe. And to submit to the reality that God is in charge of your life. You don't call upon the name of the Lord and then go back to your old life. You call upon the name of the Lord because he's in charge now. And he is calling the shots. And then some of my favorite three words in all of scripture. It's that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, not that they might be saved or could be saved or should be saved. Or that they'll be saved if they continue to be a good person. It says that they will be saved. It's a promise. It's a promise you can take to the bank. Our God is a promise maker and a promise keeper, that in that moment where you call on his name, that he might rescue and save you, in that moment you are saved now and forevermore. This is the good news of great joy. This is the invitation this morning, and it is an invitation for some of you who are here with us this morning. There are some of you who grew up in church and yet you've drifted away, or maybe you've never been part of church. Maybe you've been in church for a long, long time, and yet you just know things about God, but you don't know him intimately and personally. And this morning, I want to give you an invitation, an opportunity to do exactly what this says, to call upon the name of the Lord, to cry out to him in prayer and say, God, would you rescue and save me? So here's what I'd like all across this room to give us the space to do this. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes? And the reason we do this is because the scriptures say that it is appointed for every person to die once and after that to stand in judgment. Meaning that ultimately in the end, this is a decision you have to make for you. You have to search into your own soul and say, has the problem of sin in my own heart been dealt with? Has the issue of sin in my own heart been fully uh, reconciled to God? And if not, this morning I want to invite you and I want to plead with you to come to Jesus and to call on the name of the Lord. I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. And if you have not come to Jesus, maybe you used to be a part of church. Maybe you're not walking with him. Maybe you're not sure that you know God personally and that you will be with him in heaven forevermore. I just want to pray this prayer and you can pray it in the quietness of your heart and mind. Just call out to Jesus right where you sit. Say, God, I confess you created me. I acknowledge that you are good. 
I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. God, I've gone in my own direction. But this morning, I repent, I turn from my sin, and I trust in the finished work of Jesus, his work on the cross and in his resurrection. God, I throw myself at your mercy. I call upon the name of the Lord. God, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. Rescue me, forgive me, make me your child, give me a home forevermore. And if this morning you prayed that all across this room, like if it's the first time, if today is the day you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ and calling upon the name of the Lord, can I invite you all across this room to respond to this invitation simply by opening your eyes and looking straight at me? All across this room. Now, if you've put your trust in Jesus before, you, you can close your eyes. This is just a moment for those who are saying, no, today's the day to I've not known God personally. I've been far from God. I've been wandering in my own direction. Today, I want to trust him and call upon the name of the Lord. And to all of you who are looking at me right now across this room, up in the, the upper seats, all across, or even those of you online, here's what I want you to know. Keep looking right at me. I want you to know that this promise here on screen is not a promise for some other people in some other century. It is a promise that the God of the universe holds out to you this morning, today. He says that as you call upon the name of the Lord, you are saved. You're rescued. You're made right with God. And for those of you looking at me right now, I want you to know that the God of the universe loves you. He delights in you. He sees you and he saves you and your sins are forgiven. I want to invite you to respond to that. We have these tables all throughout the lobby that say yes to Jesus. Just walk up to one of those tables. I'm just asking you after the service, grab one of the packets. We don't want stuff from you. We just want something for you that you would know how to step forward into this relationship with Jesus where you don't just know things about God, but you know God. We want that for you. We want to celebrate with you. And we want you to know what the fullness of what it means to live with the God of the universe who delights in you. For, for everyone else, would you open your eyes and look straight at me as we look at the final um, verse of the book of Zephaniah. The final verse of our three-week series here, you'll see this here in verse 20. The final verse we'll look at simply says this, at that time I will gather you and at that time I'll bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before their very eyes, says the Lord. Do you notice that the book of Zephaniah ends in the exact same way it started? It began with the word of the Lord that God has something to say. And it ends in that same way. That God has something to say and here's what he has to say. At that time, so not now but in a future time, he's going to do three things. He's going to gather you. He's going to bring you home. He's going to give you honor and praise. Can I summarize it this way? God is going to gather his people together. All of them, he's going to gather them. God is going to give them an eternal home. Like he's going to give them a home that is safe and secure now and forevermore. And God is going to honor them for their faithfulness. And if you're looking at that as a summary of the end of the book of Zephaniah, I hope you recognize that child of God. I hope you recognize this promise and what is held out for these people. Because it's the same that's held out for us. Listen to the familiar words of John 14, chapter 1. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me, to be with me, that you might also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. These are the words of Jesus. You take them to the bank, you believe in them. 
You live your life in light of the reality that what God has promised for each and every single one of us is an eternity with him in heaven. Randy Alcorn says it this way, we were all made for a person and a place. Jesus is is the person, heaven is the place. Child of God, this is your destination. To those of you that called upon the name of the Lord this morning, here is the shocking good news of the book of Zephaniah and of the scriptures. That's your eternal home too. That's what you have to look forward to. There is a God who wants to gather his people here in this church and in every church, in every century, in every generation. He will gather them together for an eternal home. He will forgive their sins. He will make them his child. And he will delight in them and know his love over them for all of eternity. This is the good news of great joy for all people. This is the message that we leave at the book of Zephaniah. This is what the word of the Lord is to his people. The word of the Lord to the nations and the word of the Lord concerning good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. And thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us throughout the centuries, even this book of Zephaniah. And I pray that over these three weeks, we have seen your character clearly that you are who you are and you have revealed yourself to us. God, may we live in light of that reality. God, I thank you for each man and woman who responded to your gospel invitation this morning. God, that may they take steps of faith as they go forward. May your spirit fill them and seal them for the day of redemption. And God, may they walk forward in faith and confidence of who you are and what you have accomplished in their life. God, we thank you that this is a place and may it always be a place where people can call on the name of the Lord and be saved right here at Calvary. God, may we be a church that responds to the good news of great joy for all people. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.